Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. If, as is often said, consistency is the most accurate measure of true angling skill, then consistently outfishing other anglers facing the same variables on the same day, such as during a competition, has to be right up there at the top of the list. Doing that from the shore, where other skills such as casting ability come into the reckoning, further enhances the achievement. Then make it a species hunt, where a wider understanding of what goes on beneath the waves is crucial in getting a good result, and for me at least, you have the ultimate challenge. Linking up with me here is a man who regularly faces all of these challenges, and just as regularly comes out on top, Northeast match angler Andy Copeland. So is that how you see shore-based species hunts? You need a lot of knowledge, and you, you build that knowledge up. I think we've all been down there, started off as your general sort of cheap rod and rails as a kid, and you get into the match scene, and it's just a natural progression, I find. It's things I've, I've took from pleasure angling, things I've took from me match angling. You get them together, and this is the next progression. It's a new challenge, you're looking for something different. Habitat, everything comes into it. But nobody's born into any particular aspect of fishing. That's something you choose after having tried the alternatives. What was it then that attracted you to species hunting? My thing with species hunting is I was on quite a few different forums and I noticed that it was getting more and more interest in it. And what I thought that the results that was coming back really didn't justify or didn't sort of give a true picture of what was out there. And I decided, with along one of my friends, just, yeah, we'll have a go at this, let's see what we can come up with. And we took it dead easy because during the matches I'd had certain mini species and things which you're not allowed to win during the matches, but we knew these were there. Uh, so we were going out and you know, like the vibrous blennies, your various common blennies, all that sort of thing, little butterfish, and that's how we start wrapping them up. And by doing that, so the guys that was already doing these ones would come back to us and say, well, how are you doing this? We were taking them out, and obviously that's how we grew. But still, it wouldn't have started out that way. I live for now, as I've done within stone throws of it from the river where we started out like most people were going down with your Millbrough rods and your Millbrough rods and rails, six-foot things, little spinning rods, pulling flounders out for fun. And when we thought at the time there were places, it wasn't until later on we realised these were, these were actually hard flounders. There is no place in the river where joined some of the local clubs and we went and joined at the Sunderland Club. And basically, when you first kick in, you get battered every week by the, the local match lads. And once they realise you, you're keen to go. And then you, all of a sudden you look at your environment and you think, well, in the northeast where we live, we have everything. We have stone beaches up in Northumberland. And then we come down, you have the, the hard ground around the South Shales and the Marsden area. There are two local pairs. I mean, you've, you've got like the shales pair, which is really heavy ground. You've got the rotor pair, which is sort of mixed to soft ground. So you've got a good combination there. And then you've got all your estuaries, Minotaur estuaries, bear in mind. You can catch a cod. Last year I had one seven mile up the river, a five pound cod. It's that sort of thing. I mean, you, you can fish for flounders and pull out good cod. I built from that sort of thing. In here, bogs down the match angling, fishing the local matches. I did quite well. I mean, we've started fishing there. Of the west coast of Scotland, fishing there, the Kilbury and the Paver Opens, and we've got to mixing with some, I mean, some of the early, what I would call the old school match anglers now. I mean, Jimmy Doby's a good local lad over here, which I've known him for more years than I can't remember. And the likes of Alex Harvey, I mean, over your side, I was quite friendly with Bob Gledhill, I know he's long gone, but he was a nice lad. But you've got to meet people from them there, you claim knowledge from them, and in later life, you think of these places, and still pick a phone up and speak to some of these guys and say, well, I'm looking for this sort of species. Do you have them? Say, yeah, yeah, come up here, we'll show you where they are. And it's all about sharing information. And was it always shore fishing? 
when I first set out, we used to go to a boat called the Briar, and uh, it wasn't for me the idea of putting 10 inches of stainless steel and eight or hook and two lumps of, for want of a better word, it was just orange traffic tape with eight or hooks through, over a wreck, bouncing up and down, catching cod, be there through the heads, back of the heads or whatever, and uh, just to me, it just wasn't for me. Then I discovered that seasickness wasn't for me either. I really got badly into seasickness and I never ever managed to kick the habit. But uh, if I could overcome seasickness now, I wouldn't go back to boat fishing. Take us from that point then to the successful situation in which you find yourself today. Success-wise, I mean, I think the, the best result I have, we used to have the old Vox open over here, and then the Vox brewery unfortunately closed. I tried for a number of years to win that, and it just never, always managed to avoid us. And then suddenly legislative services took it over the following year, and that first year I won that with the, with the bag of ales at the river, and that's probably what brought it home, is that with the match side of things, you tend to find that there's a certain group of lads where if I won that match fair and square and it was a case of, yeah, I was just luck. If the top lads win it, it's skill, and if the, the open couple match angler wins it, it's luck. There's a couple of like, leagues, the Rutherford's League, the Mustard League, and I, I did very well in them. I mean, the Mustard League was probably the cream of the northeast match anglers. I always framed there or thereabouts in every single match. I never won the league, but they knew they'd been in the match. I picked up enough prizes through it. And then I finally got accepted into the little click of match anglers. But then it just, I just fell out of love with it. It's just, it was just too much hard work with work and family and that. You just couldn't put the hours in that's required. It's a single man's game, this match angler league. On top of which, certainly in my experience, the quality of fishing isn't what it used to be either. Well, this is the one thing I find strange about, about the fishing the way it was to where it is now. I hear people reminiscing about how we used to get lots of cod and lots of this and lots of that off the local place. And... We never did. I honestly believe now the cod fishing is as good, or if not better, than it was then. That's the trouble with the northeast anglers, they're obsessed with cods. Uh, the amount of people now will turn around and say, well, I'm now putting my gear away till next September. That's as if the scene's barren of anything else. This is what we're trying to educate people, there's lots of good fish, if you're prepared to go out and look for them. I mean, the, the river weir is a shadow of its former self when it comes to the flat fish and flounders. I mean, many, many years ago, I Glidden did an article on the way because I've been talking saying how match anglers were coming and taking up to 40 fish and taking away dead in buckets to weigh in. I think we're now suffering at the fate of that. This numbers are nowhere near what they used to be. But certainly on the on the, on the sea front, the coal fish, uh, the flat fish, I mean, we're getting more, we're getting rays, we're getting dogfish, we're getting a few smelldowns appearing. We never had them before. Local knowledge and a natural feel for where fish are likely to be holed up are also important factors in consistently achieving success. But so too are tackle and bait choices to get what is needed down at the business end to where it's needed to be in with a shout. So talk us through your thoughts on these topics, starting with identifying where to fish. When you go out looking for the species hunt, you've got to knowledge what will certainly be there. Your cod, your pollock, your whiting, your flounders. And you know that they're going to be in the in the open water. All your mini species and the likes of them, the, the more specialised stuff, as a general rule, you'll find close in in certain areas, i.e. your tadpole fish, they're very, very localised. They'll dig a burrow into a, into a pier, the bottom of a pier, and that's where they will live. The feed will come to them. I mean, when I've had a number of tadpole fish in recent years, they've always come less than a yard from the pier wall. You rarely if ever get them casting out. Unless there's some sort of reef or something where they're living on that reef just off the side, as a general rule. And this goes for a lot of the mini species. Bear in mind, a lot of the mini species, they're open male for the bigger predators. 
So they'll stay under cover and they'll look for cover. You won't find a lot of these many species on open sand for the same reason that they're the, the bigger flat fish and the, the pollock of the cod, they'll come and get them. You also tend to find them in backwaters. They don't tend to like a lot of tide. They're not really built for tide. With the exception of maybe sea scorpions where, as you know, with the spikes and things, nothing's going to eat them in a hurry. What about venues you hadn't fished before? If I didn't know venues, I would go to low water and have a look. What I'm looking for is overhangs. I'm looking at relatively deep water, even at low water. A lot of your mini species, especially the, your wrasse, all species of wrasse and things, they're resident, they won't come in and out with the tide, they sit, they hold up in the sides of sort of little reefs and things. Uh, you walk up and down, you look for tidal movement, where there's fast water. If you're going to get fast water and oxygenated water, that's where you're going to get your pollock, your mackerel, your garfish, uh, your sand nails. For instance, if you don't want to pay out, the outer wall on the flood, the water will run from inshore round the pier head into the estuary. So you'll find that all your cold fish are pollock and that will be showing up towards the end waiting for the feed to come off the pier wall to them. Now if you go around the back of the pier, on the inward side of the pier, you tend to find there's a back eddy there. There's normally dead water. And this is where you'll find your shard, all your, your weird and wonderful little things, the things that they know that they're relatively safe because the predators are not in there. There's no movement for them. They, they haven't got the ability to ambush because there's no fast water. Over sand as well, you tend to find sand that's quite barren. You know, there's, You've got to be looking for features. So which are the most productive? If you find a kelp bed, there's always fish in the kelp bed. They get underneath the rocks and in the roots of the kelp. I mean, estuary-wise, if you can find, certainly there are the way, there's a number of sunken boats. You know, if I can throw two small bits in behind a sunken boat on the flood, I will find eels, I'll find your, your eel pouts, everything that's lying out of the tide. They're sitting way high behind this feature, waiting for the feed to get pushed up the river and round the, the edge of the feature to them. Then they'll sit and pick up whatever comes past. And harvest too, presumably. If they work on harvest, fishermen are creatures of habit, commercial fishermen. They'll sort the baits and the nets in the same spot, and they'll throw stuff down. This becomes a natural feed. The mini species know this, and they will hold up under these areas. An old piece of netting or a couple of old lobster pots, anything, they'll use that as cover. You can throw a ragworm down, you see the shallies diving out from under the lobster pots. Because they know that the feed's going to come to them. Like That's all they need, just anything that they need as cover. The same fish, though, if it was an open sandy bay that clays in and out, you would never get them. What are your thoughts on rods? What I will say is, even working in the tackle trade, there is no such thing as a rod that does everything. I wish there was, because I'd be a millionaire discovering it. It doesn't exist. So, what I'll do is, if, we, if we're going after huss and uh, congers and the likes, it'll be a, a good seven ounce, stiff seven-ounce beach caster, I mean, I use an old Formula One, the Century Formula One, which basically would pull the plug out. You're hitting a fish and you know it's going to have the backbone to put anything or any snags. And then you move down to your match rods. I mean, primarily being based in the northeast, it's nearly all century. That's what I use. It's normally tipped on here. I've got a tipped on the matches and sports. The match is a lovely rod. It's, it picks up the smallest bites and things. But then if you're going to go further down the scale again, if I'm fishing for likes of the smaller species of flat fish and your, your dabs and your flounders things that are then go on to continental rods because if you're using muddies the trouble with your standard beach caster is if you start putting muddies on a hook and you start casting any real distance you just rip them off so you need the softer continental rods it's uh we will go down there uh, i mean even some of the rf stuff is or should i say before they get the rf level often we've seen use a, a 12 foot quiver tip one half ounce quiver tip 
for exactly the same reason that I can cast out with it and work a bit back towards us on a sort of one ounce lead and that will pick up your dragonettes and the bottom feeders that we'll chase on open sand. What about real choice? Is this where fixed spools come into their own? If I'm fishing for conga, it'll be a 5.25 mark or something along them lines. If I'm going to hit distance, it's generally pen fathoms or 6,500 cts. But I will use, once again, if I'm fishing for the maddies, I use fixed spools for the simple reason it's you cannot cast a maddie on a multiplier at same again. It just destroys the bit. You need a whole armoury. You need everything from the heavy guns right through to your very, very small stuff. For my heavier stuff, I'm using a lot of pens, being surf blasters, spin fishers. The spin fishers just come to the front in the northeast. It's very, very good. Right? Designed in America for the catch tarpon. Uh, so imagine it. Nothing in the UK is going to threaten it. <laughs> yeah. What about line choice? Braid or mono? It's a bone of contention with braid at the moment. Basically, yeah, I use braid for me ultralight fishing when I'm fishing straight up or down for the direct control and things like that. I tend not to want to cast any distance because we have a major problem in the northeast now. By what I'm hearing, it's lads are using 90 or 100 pound braids, getting them fast up on the, on the rock edges and the pier ends, and they're just causing a nightmare. A lot of areas are totally unfishable. Uh, lads using monos can no longer fish these, these venues because they, they literally cannot get through the braid. And the braids, you're talking 25 years to break up, it doesn't go anywhere. I don't like braid anyway. Braid's a nightmare. I was playing the Bob Gascon, the manager, and uh, he made his views on braid. Clear as a bell, shall we say, because I was using braid close in for flounders in the sand flash, and it was like... And for tying on the end of it? First and foremost, I always tie me on traces. I have no faith in factory tied rigs. If you've got to hit a bit long distance, you want to know that it's getting there, and you don't, if you, especially if you're swinging leads, the last thing you want to be doing is risking people around you. If you stick to the well known companies, the Gemini's, the Breakaways, uh, Tronics now have come, come to the front, they're doing quite a good range of reasonably priced tackle. It isn't, it isn't cheap, I'll, I'll chat, it's a decent tackle for the price. But certainly Gemini and Breakaway are probably the best. When it comes to hooks, most of my hooks are Sakuma. The light match stuff I use to Sarmis or Sab Polos, which is the hooks that's distributed by Tronics. On the very, very ultralight stuff, we start using camas and animal hooks that a lot of the carp anglers use. They go from a size, I think it's a size 4 right down to a size 20. And we do use 20s at times. For me, it's hard to imagine hooks that small used at sea. It's all about presenting the bait. Ultrafine bait needles are an absolute must. Do you ever fish barbless? Most of the, the animal hooks we use are barbless, yeah. It's, as a general rule, once the fish are on, they tend not to come off, so it, it's far easier. On the bigger species, no, never. To uh, be honest, on a, on a heavy weight fish, at the time of carp angling, I thought barbless hooks would do more harm to the carp than what a barb would do. Once a barb hooks in the lip of a fish, it stops there. On a, a barbless on a big fish, it slides about. I've seen it sort of get two or three holes across a fish's mouth and it's not something I'm too keen on to be honest. All of that said, the best and most perfectly matched gear in the world is nothing without the right bait in terms of quality, type, presentation and size. Bait is everything. As a match angler initially we used to spend more time collecting bait than we ever did fishing. We'd be over Flimby, over, over in Cumbria collecting the little blacks and we'd up the pressing pans for the white worm, down the local pier feathering for your, your freshest mackerel. 
just maybe half a dozen at a time and dry them out and get them frozen down. That's everything. I mean, for the species, don't basically mackerel and ragworm is all you ever going to need. Certainly with ragworm, the fresher the better. And if you can dig it locally, I mean, that can go down the, just down the road here and dig up sort of half a pound of maddies and a couple of tides. And as far as the ultralight stuff goes, that's more you're ever going to need. And not only getting quality bait, but keeping it that way too. With muddies, it's just wrapped in damp newspaper, and then two or three layers, and that'll go into a dry newspaper and just keep an eye. We have a plug-in cool bag that goes in the car, a cool box, and everything's pretty much secure there. There's very few places now you can go where you can't get to the likes of Amo, or the Amo sand nails and stuff like that. I mean, we go down to Anglesey and up the west coast, and most places have got them. Crab is another thing. Funny enough, crab is not a bait I'd use on a regular basis for the species hunting. With the exception of hounds, codlin, and probably flounders, there's not a real lot of cards for it. A good tip with the ragworm is uh, if you've got your local tattle tails, ask them for the smaller ones. Certainly where I go, or where I work, if somebody comes and asks me where I work, meet in the trail ragworm, there you go, if you want to pick them all out, go for it. It makes life a damn sight easier if your ragworm's only sort of two inches long by you, but two or three mil thick, than trying to get a big king rag on a, on a small hunt, it's a non-starterly. What about the longer term keeping of live baits in trays and fridges? Yeah, I mean, I keep a bit ragworm in trays and a little bit of lugworm, but as a general, I mean, when I was match fishing, I had just the whole fridge set up and... It comes to a point where it becomes an obsession. I think as you get older, you realise that you know where I'm coming from. Absolutely, yeah. Those days are long gone. So give us your thoughts on presentation. For presentation-wise, are the smaller hoops. Anything below sort of a size sort of four, right through to maybe a size ten. It's used as one of the baiting tools. I mean, I don't you come across them like a, a flute, like a plastic dart. And what you do is you'll put your hook on, on one side, there's a trough, you'll lie your bait in and whip it on. So the bait's a perfect presentation with your hook coming off the other side. I know Ian Gold and I think there was, coming, there was two or three companies who were arguing who had the copyright for it. And I'm not even sure they ever got produced. When I send you a recorder back, Phil, I'll send you one. And it'll give you an idea what it's about. It's like a piece of plastic tube cut along its length to form a shallow channel that the hook and bait can be laid into. After which elastic thread is wrapped round them so they can be slid out ready to go. A bit like a trout spoon, I suppose, but on a much smaller scale. Yeah, something along them lines, that's the one. You can get a, a beard perfectly presented. I mean, you can get something like the, the smallest cube of metal where you just put in a hook and has no effect. You then tie that on so it cuts into the hook and the flesh comes off the skin and then makes like a little puffed up ball of fish. And the fish, the smaller fish will fight over that. And being able to present such small baits effectively will also allow you to match the hook sizes proportionally, rather than is so often the case using hooks that are just not suited for the job. It's what I've always said, I mean, apart from species, I coach with Anglin Trust, I'm a level two coach, see Anglin coach as well. And we'd say to the kids, basically, big hook catches big fish, small hook catches everything. The trick is, you've got to say to somebody, look at a dab, look at the size of its mouth. Now, why would you put a bait, a three-hour hook, something bigger than the fish's head? It's like giving a guy a foot-wide hamburger and saying, try to eat that. It's all about matching the hook size to the fish. We've all seen greedy dads that took things that's far too big. There's a lot of myths and things. I mean, another one is if you get, if you have a problem with using fish baits and you're getting crabbed off, they'll say, oh, we'll put more fish bait on. 
that will give fish a chance to find the bait. That's a myth, because fish have got a far greater sense of smell than the crab. Scale your fish baits down, and the fish will find it before the crab even knows it's there. What for you, then, is the main must-have bait? On the smaller species, without a shadow of a doubt, ragworm. Without a shadow of a doubt, it's probably, I'd say, 80% of my fish will come to that. I mean, I will use mackerel. I'll give you an example of the reason to use mackerel is, if you go to an area which is full of wrasse, You've got your five species of wrasse. You've got your balans, your cuckoos, your court wings, your rock cooks and your goldsinnies. Your cuckoos and your rock cooks prefer fish. A lot of people will think, oh no, wrasse just love ragworm. I mean, don't get us wrong. Some of the cuckoos will take ragworm. But you'll put a little slither of mackerel on and uh, you pull the cuckoos out that you didn't know were there. You kind of generalise one species and just assume that because they're all prefixed with their wrasse, they all eat the same things. Right, now for the part of the interview I'm most looking forward to. In species matches, any angler worth his salt should be able to rack up a list of the more common species, such as cod, flatties, whiting and the rest. They still have to be caught, but they all count. Often it's the smaller, more unusual fish that are going to make the difference, and I know that you specialise in catching these. When I was working on my book, The Ultimate Angling Bucket List, I struggled to get photographs of some of these more unusual species. Things like tadpole fish, Yarrell's Blenny and Shore Rockling, which is how we initially crossed paths. You already had the pictures, not only of these fish, but many other rarely seen species, and the main reason why you've been able to put these in front of the camera and do so well in species hunts is LRF, light rock fishing. So what's that all about? Well, the LRF originally started in the Far East. It became a, a sporting challenge for the Japanese anglers. They started catching literally everything and anything on ultralight tackles, primarily using lures. And it progressed from there to soft baits, a lot of soft baits. And then the lads over here, so, or should we say, workers from Japan came to the UK and started fishing around the areas. Lads were watching these lads using ultralight rods, ultralight rods, thinking, what's this all about? And it just spread. George Cunningham from Tronics is a... He's probably one of the main guys that brought LRF to the UK. He actually went out and brought a range of products and then gave them to the general public, this is what you need. For want of a better word, it's, it's coarse fishing in the sea using lures. Your gear's that light. And is it always done using lures? No, 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 not necessarily. I mean, LRF, that would be using the lures, your paddle tails and isoms. Isoms is a great bit. Very, very underrated in my view. We do alright with isoms over here. But, I mean, you get the like what I call light line fishing, which is using the same rods, the same rails, but using bait. I mean, we started fishing over here doing it. I mean, imagine in the northeast, we had all the cod anglers looking at us saying, what's these maniacs up there? And then next thing we know, there's, we've actually got plans to do an actual a match. We've never, ever had an LRF match. In the next month or so, once the season kicks in, we're actually going to have an LRF match on local payer, the local payer. And how it's going to work is, you'll get your match card, and every species that's liable to be caught on there has been given a, a value, a points value. You only allow two of each species, and it's the guy that gets the most points. Now that's to me, is the ultimate challenge, because if you're going to sit down the wall, you get your two corvish straight away, but that's all you will get. You're going to have to try all the different methods, different baits, different distances. Fish out on the sand to try to get your dabs and things, then come right under the pier walls about to get your, your butter fish and your tadpole fish, your various blennies. And despite the name, it isn't only for heavy ground species. I believe that people can also do it over mixed and clean ground in estuaries and harbours. 
It's just a terminology. It's fishing ultra light, sort of anywhere, but especially harbours and anywhere where you've got deepish water at your feet or, or cover at your feet. You can do the flounders and you would literally go to like the Ribble Estuary and put a little bit of matter on LRF road and let the tide bring that in and you get, the flounders will chase it up and you'll get just as much sport like that. But that's probably what all you would get. Where the harbours and estuaries and things have quite a diverse range of species. It's all about finding what's in there and then target them. So are there any specific lures which suit specific species of fish? Certainly isoms. Isoms are very, very attracted to the sea scorpions and the flounders. I think it's because any fish that feeds predominantly on worm will be attracted to isoms because obviously they look like an agile drop shot on them back, they move like a worm. Your little paddle tails and your, your little spinner blades, they're very much similar along the small pond of the coalfish. No different as you would a cod feather or something like that, you know, on a boat. It's just something that moves. They say there's a male on the it. You say small lovers, but how small actually is small? Some of the LRF lovers will go down there. A size 10 oak. They'll have a spinner blade that's maybe half an inch. The whole lower in, in total will be an inch long. And these are twitched back in very slowly. That's it. Just flick them into the tide or down the edge and work them back and find out what speed. And then the amount of time you'll work a small spinner, it'll come back and you watch the fish following it. For some reason, it's something just a half a turn faster. That's enough for them to say, well, I'm having that. That's if it doesn't get hung up. This is the downside well RF. We have drop shot weights, which is a, it's got a special clip where the, the weight isn't actually tied on. It comes to a, a narrow point where the line is just slid up into it. And that holds the lead. Should you get fastened, then you discard the lead and you still retrieve your fish. Thankfully, the price of the leads is relatively cheap. I mean, I can lose sort of half a dozen or more in a session if I'm in a really snaggy area. Like. They're like a column weight, which is maybe 68 grams, but they're straight up and down, a bit like a pencil shape. You tend to don't snag as hard as easily as some of the your standard shapes, you know. Getting back to the ultra small hogs, when would you feel the need to scale down to say a size twenty? I'll use something like a three pound fluorocarbon on a size twenty, and I'll actually use it under a probably a waggler float, and I'll be fishing for sand gobies. I mean, a sand goby's only two inches long, and it's got the mouth not much bigger than a pinhead. My last sand goby was caught up at Loch Erif, and that was caught in a single squid tentacle. So you'd imagine how big that bait was. And no doubt when you're targeting these smaller species, you're also going to hook up some of the bigger species too, and then you'll have a real fight on your hands. Funny enough, I mean, I did exactly that at Anglesey in the summer. I was fishing down the side for many species, and uh, I hit a, a rat over three pounds on a 0.5 gram LRF rod. Now, this rod was all ships. Gives one of the fights of its life, and it's one of the bonuses, because you realise what rods and what drags is for on rails, and this thing was tremendous. It's the whole idea of LRF, it's the, it's the not known. I mean, you will get pollock, you get some nice pollock, and uh, the pollock will take the smallest little bit of ice, some little bit of red ice, so as you're winding back, you think, oh, I'll go and change my beard, as you're winding back, uh, the road locks over, and you find you connect the two or three pound pollock. And with all of that comes the added challenge of understanding the lifestyle and needs of so many different species of fish, not to mention the ability to identify them all. Yep. Identifying-wise, I'll be honest, I was very fortunate. It's when I first left school, I used to work in North Shields Fish Cree with the fisheries, working with the shellfish and that, and uh, the amount of times we came across stuff that was way wonderful while we were sorting bait, and we put it in a tree, and there was a very, very good guy that came up for the marine place at Whitley Bay, come across and tell us exactly what we found. Hence, we found the likes of pogs, 
and stickle backs and all these sort of things. Thing you'd never see in a general room. Nowadays there's a lot of good apps that, like yourself, putting the books together. The knowledge is there now. If you go looking for it, you'll find out what it is. What for you would be a typical species count in a match? If, well, as you see, we, we have this one a few weeks' time, and I'd expect no less than 78 species. They'll have 16 fish, 12 each species. If everything she was, it could have possibly up to 10 to 12 species. So what's your best ever total, both in a match and in a year? In a year it was 48, and even then was disappointed because I had some glaring misses that year. I mean, I didn't have a red girl enough for the one to try it. It's one of those strange phenomena, it's like when the fish goes playing games with me. I mean, I was fishing on the pier, looking, trying to get a, a horse mackerel, which is another one I didn't get. Uh, I fished for the best part of three or four hours, had a number of pollock, a number of mackerel out on float fish, ragworm baits and fish baits. A guy came across, cast it over the top of us, wound his in and pulled horse mackerel in. But the guy was using the float that was going to be best described as a barcock. This thing should have been mooring a boat, not fishing with it. This is what the fishing's about, this is why it's called fishing and not catching. What's the most standout species your LRF matches have ever brought in? If, on our side, I mean, get a lot of hagfish. Now they're a horrible thing. Horrible pink slimy things. They can be a nightmare. We can have a, some real problems with them. If the stuff we get the most obscure is probably is the tadpole fish. I mean, I went through a sort of purple patch last year where I had five in six sessions. This year I've never had a one. They normally come in sort of early February. They should be there now, and I know of one that's been caught. I remember once fishing a shore-based species match over in Ireland, when day after day bad weather kept us from fishing the Wexford Small Boat Competition. And while our team notched up 13 species, the bulk of these were ruled ineligible as they didn't meet Irish minimum fish landing sizes. So what part then, if any, do size limits restrict species hunts these days? This is why, in the early days of the species hunts, the rules were quite vague. I had a big run-in with one of the main organisers, British Sea Anglers Forum, because they put a size limit of 25 centimetres on rass, on all rass. So we actually came in with a 24 centimetre caught wing rass, which was an ounce over the British record. I actually recorded it, weighed it, and verified it and put it back. And they wouldn't accept it as a species. It wasn't a specimen because it wasn't 25 centimetres. And I said it was an absolute nonsense. You can't go break on a British record. They're not recognised as a species. Uh, so what nowadays what you do is, there is no size limits. You get issued with a, a species card if you're travelling. What's the start of the species on? The species card would be issued with today's date on, uh, a unique sort of logo on it. That would be handed out to the guy. He goes away, gets his species, takes the picture with the card, puts the fish back, and then he'll sort of forward all his photographs to the, the organiser of the match. It's down to a lot of trust, that's why you don't have a lot of prize money involved, because inevitably when there's money and prizes involved, cheating comes in. On our format, you're only cheating yourself. Even so, some fish are notoriously difficult to pin names to. So are there any additional safeguards to ensure accuracy? I get involved quite a lot. Normally what you'll do is the organisers, they'll send me the picture. Andy, can you identify what this is? Davy Holt, the guy, the fish recorder in Scotland, Davy gets quite a few as well. Alan Gethin Owen, uh, on my way out of Anglesey, he's another guy that identifies the fish. It's not a norm for me, Davy and Gethin, get there, pass pictures amongst each other, what do you think this is? And touch wood, we haven't gotten it wrong yet, like. What else can be done to improve these LRF matches, if anything? 
basically what we need to do is, as the interest comes in, we need to educate handling, the handling of fish. It's not just about catching fish, it's actually how you treat the fish when you get them. It wasn't strictly LRF, but I was in the Isle of Man for the Queenie Festival. For the, it's a celebration of the shellfish. And the Man and Angling Club took me and a couple of friends over as coaches. And we had a group of kids from three up to maybe 15. And what we were doing, we were catching rats on the LRF stuff, bringing them up, putting them into a freshwater tank. Then we'll put them in a seawater bucket, taking them down the landing stairs with them and putting them back. And the kids were giving them names. And the kids were learning how to handle the fish and then how to put them back correctly. And that's what we need in loads of courses of people saying, this, you know, it's not about, oh, I've got one of these, take a picture, throw it off the pier wall. I have to be honest here and admit to having been less than complimentary about LRF in the past. Not so much the technique as the growing need to scale down expectations as well as terminal gear. But for you, presumably, that isn't a problem. It's merely a way of racking up points in what has to be the most challenging competitive environment of them all. It's a conscious choice you make to do that. But what of the future of sea angling more generally? Is the time fast approaching where small obscure species with little or no commercial value are going to be the only things left, leaving it a choice between LRF or nothing? I'm not convinced the doom and gloom element of the fishing is that bad. I mean, I see improvements on this side of the coast. We're seeing species moving up in numbers that we've never had. I mean, you could never go on the northeast coast but sort of see them to Sunland and target dogfish and, and race. You can't now. There's a, quite a few dogfish. I mean, I've never seen so many dogfish as what's turned up in recent weeks. And I think it's all a good thing. I don't think it's a case of fish quarters. I think basically these boats, apart from the, the big boats, they can't afford to go to sea anymore. And I think that's what's helping it. But I, I think that's the recreational side of things, people realise that the seals catching all this weird wonderful and they want some. We have various sort of people come up to us, family groups, and explain what we're doing. And they love it. And you give them a go and that's what it's all about. And get people into the sea angling, into the fishing sort of thing. Aided, no doubt, by rising sea temperatures, pushing everything up to the north. Well, I'm a great believer in that because a lot of people, I speak to this, oh, no, it's rubbish, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, well, although oh, boats, when I did used to go, but we used to get regular, get decent bags of haddock. You'd never see a haddock. Haddocks are cold water species. They've moved up. The cold fish have gone in. The, I mean, we've got cold fish, but they're the bigger ones, we don't see them now. You only got to look into the Menai Straits to like get to get in. I mean, Gilthead Bream are a realistic target now. They're a Mediterranean fish. And then you've got your red band fish and everything down the south coast and all these weird and wonderful things, which I'd love to go down and give them a go. Or maybe we just need to wait for more of them to push up onto our patch and find us. So thanks very much to Andy Copeland for sowing that seed in our minds here. <laughs> <laughs>